Chapter Fourteen, Part Two of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Last Years of McKinley, Part Two. Even more unfortunate was a bitter controversy between the friends of Rear Admiral Sampson and those of Rear Admiral Schley, in which it may be said, to the honor of both these officers, that neither took any active part. Note thirty four page six twenty three at the beginning of the war the former had been promoted to the chief command of the fleet in cuban waters although previously he had been of rank inferior to schley this promotion was in accordance with the prevailing sentiment of naval experts admiral sampson represented the type of naval officer who is above all else strictly and most commendably professional cold in temperament clear-headed dispassionate and self-controlled he had many of the traits that were to be found in moltke and that contributed so largely to that soldier's phenomenal success his one thought was to perform with absolute efficiency the tasks assigned him and in so doing to spare no pains and to leave no details unnoticed or unprovided for he had a high degree of scientific knowledge and he represented what was best in the traditions of the old navy and in the aspirations of the new he cared nothing for popular applause and never suffered any thought of it to influence his actions those who did not know him well criticized him as too reserved too austere and in fact as too professional his tactlessness indeed was at times almost repellent when upon his tardy arrival at the battle of santiago commodore schley signalled him a message of enthusiastic congratulation sampson made the coldly curt reply report your casualties but in the navy he was regarded with profound respect and his promotion was marvellously justified by the event the smashing of cervera's fleet was just as much his work as though his own hand had fired every gun upon that memorable day of victory rear admiral schley was a very different type of man he was first of all a man of impulse of eager action in fact more typically french than anglo-saxon he was far more easy-going than admiral sampson less intellectual less steady less sure of himself in any sudden emergency as was shown by his hesitating and dilatory course when ordered to blockade cervera in santiago admiral schley kept an eye upon the public and he loved the approval of the public applause was very sweet to him and he knew something of the ways and arts of the politician his impulsiveness his urbanity and his lack of reserve made him liked by many whose standards of judgment were personal and not professional to these he seemed delightfully human while admiral sampson was possibly regarded as a naval martinet after the war his friends very unwisely ascribed to him the chief honours of the victory at santiago declaring that he was actually in command while admiral sampson had arrived only at the conclusion of the fight this nettled the latter's friends and they retorted by pointing to schley's disobedience of orders by criticizing his manoeuvres in the battle and at last by accusing him in naval phrase of being gun-shy accusation was met with counter-accusation until at last admiral schley very properly demanded a naval court of inquiry which was granted the court was composed of admirals dewey ramsay and benham and after a patient consideration of all the facts it rendered a report to the effect that admiral sampson had been really in command of the fleet at the battle of santiago and at the same time that there was no ground for any aspersions on the courage and coolness of admiral schley while under fire the court declined to consider admiral schley's alleged disobedience of orders prior to the blockade of santiago holding that whatever his conduct may have been at that time it had been condoned by the navy department in failing to relieve him of his command and by congress in advancing him to the rank of rear admiral 
the findings of the court were approved by president mckinley and the unpleasant controversy gradually came to an end even in the press a striking tribute was paid to admiral sampson by his fellow-officers on his retiring from command the scene has been described by a well-known man of letters in these words when the time arrived for admiral sampson to surrender the command of the fleet he had brought back to hampton roads he came on deck to meet there only those officers whose prescribed duty required them to take part in the farewell ceremonies as set forth in the regulations but when he went over the side of the flagship he found that the boat which was to bear him ashore was manned by the rest of the officers ready to row him themselves and eager to render this last personal service and then from every other ship of the fleet there put out a boat also manned by officers to escort for the last time the commander whom they loved and honoured note thirty five page six twenty six few of those who became conspicuous by their achievements in the war escaped some measure of detraction or neglect general shafter's name was soon forgotten other generals of the regular army who in spite of the blunders of the department fought so brilliantly in cuba and the philippines received only a grudging recognition from the nation as a whole lieutenant hobson whose gallant exploits on the merrimac made him for the moment a popular idol became afterwards the target of almost universal ridicule some foolish girl among a throng of those who welcomed him on his return threw her arms around him and kissed him and other women still more foolish tried from time to time to follow her example until the comic papers turned the whole thing into a cheap joke and coined the verb to hobsonize that is to kiss a man against his will one exception to the list of those who were neglected or even vilified was found in the person of mr theodore roosevelt of new york mr roosevelt at the opening of the war was assistant secretary of the navy his active forceful and impulsive nature coupled with an intense enthusiasm had done much to stimulate the activities of the department in which he served when war was formally declared mr roosevelt raised the regiment known as the rough riders the first volunteer united states cavalry and went to cuba as its lieutenant-colonel the colonel being dr leonard wood until that time an army surgeon colonel roosevelt's personality was such as readily attracted the attention of newspaper writers in search of the picturesque his spectacular performances at the battle of san juan gained for him a vast amount of public notice so that to the popular mind he seemed to have won the day almost single-handed like an old-time hero of romance note thirty six page six twenty seven returning home he narrated his adventures in various magazine articles and public speeches and no one was permitted to forget him not long after his regiment had been mustered out mr roosevelt became the republican candidate for the governorship of new york and was elected by a plurality of eighteen thousand votes his success being very largely due to the prestige of his military service when peace was finally declared the nation leaped at once into an era of unprecedented prosperity as is always the case a brilliantly successful foreign war stimulated commercial activity in every quarter the american people no longer suffered from that intangible ailment which during the second administration of mr cleveland had been styled a general lack of confidence now they were if anything overconfident with the result that the year eighteen ninety nine became an annus mirabilis in the records of american commerce and finance capital which had long been locked up by its timid owners now came forth and reaped abundant profits all the staple products of the country were in keen demand and prices soared almost from day to day for the first time in american economic history the volume of foreign trade for the single year amounted to more than two billion dollars 
in the iron and steel trade prices increased more than one hundred per cent during the year the growth in textile manufactures was almost equally remarkable agriculture shared in the general prosperity mortgages being rapidly cleared off savings banks deposits increasing new and improved buildings and implements being used while comforts and even luxuries hitherto unknown were now enjoyed the price of raw cotton rose within the year thirty per cent while the price of wool almost doubled in the same period note thirty seven page six twenty eight on october twelfth the stock of gold in the united states treasury amounted to two hundred fifty eight million dollars the highest figure since the foundation of the government while the gold in actual circulation reached the enormous sum of seven hundred three million dollars mr james t woodward president of the new york clearing-house commission wrote all trade reports show that our factories are taxed to their utmost capacity in filling their orders the railroads are unable to cope with the traffic that is offered not having sufficient equipment to haul the raw materials to the factories and mills or to carry the finished product to the wholesaler and jobber and on every hand we hear of a record-breaking business and constantly increasing wages the latter in many cases as much as ten and fifteen per cent note thirty eight page six twenty eight the winning of a foothold in asia stimulated american trade throughout the east imports from asia showed an increase in this one year of forty million dollars as against a smaller increase in exports of about six million dollars with the west indies there was an increase in imports of fourteen million dollars and in exports of some fifteen million in exports generally the most noticeable circumstance was the volume of manufactured goods sent abroad the united states began to compete successfully with british ironmasters not only in distant parts of the world such as india and australia but in great britain itself on the whole the year eighteen ninety nine saw an almost furious commercial activity a steady rise in the prices of staple goods and an unprecedented confidence in the immediate business future of the country there were of course many causes for this revival of prosperity in the first place the people had pinched and saved for years and had therefore in a measure diminished the burden of their debts again the surplus stock of manufactured goods had been gradually consumed the more speedily because so many mills and factories had either been shut down or had been working on half-time still further as has already been noted there was the stimulus of the war and the lavish expenditures by the government for supplies of every sort and for transportation but back of all these causes there was another even more important of which however only scientific economists recognize the profound significance the demonetization of silver and the practical adoption of the gold standard in the preceding decade had limited the medium of exchange for commercial purposes and had tended to cause an increasing contraction in the money market the enhanced value of the dollar as measured in gold would in consequence have sent prices lower and lower and would thus have steadily increased the burdens of the debtor class not only in the united states but throughout the entire world as mr charles francis adams expressed it in speaking of the adoption of the gold standard thereafter in the great system of international exchanges silver ceased to be counted a part of that specie reserve on which drafts were made thenceforth the drain as among the financial centres was to be on gold alone in the whole history of man no precedent for such a step was to be found so far as the united states was concerned the basis on which its complex and delicate financial fabric rested was weakened by one half and the cheaper and more accessible metal that to which the debtor would naturally have recourse in discharge of his obligations was made unavailable 
it could further be demonstrated that without a complete readjustment of currencies and values the world's accumulated stock and annual production of gold could not as a monetary basis be made to suffice for its needs a continually recurring contest for gold among the great financial centres was inevitable a change which in the language of lecky beyond all other effects most deeply and universally the material well-being of man had been unwittingly challenged note thirty nine page six thirty this contradiction of the currency would naturally have been hastened with the increase of the world's population and with the growing demand for gold for use in the arts the disastrous result of such conditions could have been averted in only one of two ways either by restoring silver to its former place as was proposed by mr bryan or by an unforeseen and unexpected addition to the world's stock of gold it was the second solution which was actually arrived at and this was due to the achievements of the explorer and the man of science in august of eighteen ninety six a roving miner named cormac found himself near the klondike creek in the remote canadian territory of yukon a region thirteen hundred miles northwest of the city of seattle and almost within the arctic circle in this desolate and nearly unknown spot cormac discovered indications of rich gold deposits at that time even the rudest habitation had not yet been erected there a year later some fifteen thousand fortune-seekers had reared a ragged sort of city in this barren waste and were enduring the horrors of an arctic winter for the sake of the precious metal which the frozen earth reluctantly gave up to them note forty page six thirty one still larger deposits were subsequently discovered in the nome district of alaska while the beach sands and river gravels at the head of cook's inlet proved also to be richly auriferous during the few years which immediately followed upon these discoveries the districts mentioned yielded not far from one hundred forty million dollars worth of gold almost coincidentally the production of the south african gold mines increased so rapidly as to bring forth nearly one hundred million dollars annually the unexpected therefore actually happened the end which mr bryan had had in view was accomplished in another way not by the appreciation of silver but rather by the depreciation of gold or at least by the operation of causes which prevented gold from becoming scarcer this fact explains the comparatively slight friction attending the passage of a very important financial measure in the year nineteen hundred the congressional elections of eighteen ninety eight had somewhat reduced the size of the republican majority in the house but it had also eliminated from the senate a number of the silver advocates so that the upper chamber for the first time contained a working majority of senators favorable to the gold standard what had hitherto been in practice the financial policy of the government was now embodied in formal legislation a so-called currency bill was introduced into the house on december fourth eighteen ninety nine and with some amendments became law on march fourteenth nineteen hundred it declared the gold dollar to be the standard unit of value and all other forms of money in use to be redeemable in gold it established a gold reserve of one hundred fifty million dollars and directed the secretary of the treasury to sell bonds to replenish this reserve whenever it should fall below one hundred million dollars note forty one page six thirty two the currency act carried out the pledges made in the republican platform of eighteen ninety six and both at home and abroad it strengthened the financial credit of the united states the buoyant feeling which was perceptible in the business world found instant expression in the centres of speculation hundreds of millions of dollars had been added to the market value of the shares listed on the new york stock exchange alone with the result that speculation assumed extraordinary proportions 
new enterprises and new combinations of capital were almost daily announced to an interested and eager public the business done in wall street during the first three months of eighteen ninety nine was greater by nearly fifteen million shares than during the first three months of eighteen ninety eight there was a keen demand for the so-called industrial stocks and this demand was supplied and oversupplied by the flotation of new companies which were capitalized at sums ranging from one hundred fifty million down to fifty million dollars existing companies also greatly increased their capital or in popular language watered their stock in order to form combinations which in effect were trusts money was easy profit-making easier the speculative disposition developed with rushes the industrial fever was high promoters crowded into wall street and madly rolled out gigantic capitalizations the era of consolidation was on all sides proclaimed as present and as full of blessings note forty two page six thirty three even a sharp reaction which occurred late in the year was treated lightly and was optimistically called a prosperity panic at this time there came conspicuously into public notice a number of bold financiers who being already possessed of great fortunes amazed the country and in fact the world by the magnitude of their operations the promoter and the underwriter were continually forming new trusts or holding companies into each of which were merged a large number of smaller properties thus the corporation trust company of new jersey became the agent of seven hundred corporations with an aggregate capital of one billion dollars the new jersey corporation guarantee and trust company represented five hundred corporations with not less than five hundred million dollars capital the combined capital of such combinations as were actually trusts amounted to more than four billion dollars a scientific economist has estimated that the addition to the capitalization of the country in the brief period which is now under consideration exceeded the total capitalization of all the manufacturing companies established in the united states during the thirty years between eighteen sixty and eighteen ninety note forty three page six thirty three the underwriters and promoters who effected these combinations reaped huge profits thus messrs j p morgan and company who promoted the united states steel corporation and advanced it twenty five million dollars in cash received in return one hundred six million eight hundred thousand dollars in its preferred and common stock for promoting the american tinplate company mr w h moore received ten million dollars in the common stock of that concern the persons who promoted the distilling company of america were paid in stock amounting to twenty four million dollars the disproportion between the capital of some of these companies and the market value of their securities was startling to conservative financiers thus the united states leather company was capitalized at one hundred twenty five million dollars while the market value of its stock was about fifty million dollars the united states steel corporation was overcapitalized to the extent of about eight hundred thirty million dollars note forty four page six thirty four the bigness of these extraordinary figures and the rapidity with which such profits were made dazzled men's minds so that they became drunk with the passion of money-getting and blind to all other standards and ideals they thought and spoke in millions and the napoleons of wall street became in a sense heroes and demigods men and women and even children all over the country drank in thirstily every scrap of news that was printed in the press about these so-called captains of industry their successful deals the off-hand way in which they converted slips of worthless paper into guarantees of more than princely wealth and all the details concerning their daily lives their personal peculiarities their virtues and their vices 
to the imagination of millions of americans the financial centres of the country seemed to be spouting streams of gold into which any one might dip at will and every wall street gutter figured as a new pactolus the men who represented the achievements of this era were of varied types most conspicuous among them all was mr j pierpont morgan whose bold conceptions successfully wrought out attracted the attention of both hemispheres mr morgan was a gentleman of cultivated taste who as a young man had inclined for a time toward the scholar's life he pursued his studies at the boston latin school where he read the classics leisurely and was grounded thoroughly in the old-fashioned education later in germany he spent some time at the university of gottingen where he heard lectures in history and political economy and won such distinction by his mathematical work as to receive the offer of a professor's chair in that historic institution he became in after years a connoisseur of the fine arts a collector of rare books and manuscripts and a patron of science and learning but these were only the diversions the peruga of an extraordinary career wall street and lombard street both spoke of him and of his achievements with bated breath his schemes for multiplying ordinary fortunes into colossal accumulations of wealth made him appear to the small fry of finance a modern midas whose magic touch turned everything to gold haughty and often arrogant in bearing he asserted an irresistible influence over all he met and he justified their belief in him by the inviolability of his plighted word no less than by the great success which seemed for a time to be inseparable from his enterprises it was he who organized in nineteen hundred one the united states steel corporation capitalized at one billion four hundred four million dollars a company which swallowed the plants the bonds and the stocks of ten of the largest corporations of the world note forty five page six thirty five of an entirely different type was mr andrew carnegie who came to the united states from scotland when a mere child and at the age of twelve was set to work in a pennsylvania cotton mill on a weekly salary of one dollar twenty subsequently he became a telegraph operator employed by the pennsylvania railroad and after some years the superintendent of an important division of that road mr carnegie was canny even beyond the proverbial canniness of his countrymen and little by little through the judicious purchase of stocks he secured an interest in oil-producing concerns mr carnegie's investments presently netted him a comfortable fortune with which in eighteen sixty five he began the manufacture of iron protected by the high tariff his ventures proved remarkably successful and he very shrewdly acquired valuable coal and ore beds his relations with the railroads also gave him great and special advantages when the united states steel corporation was formed mr carnegie's company had to be bought out and it is said that in the negotiations attending this sale the scotchman outmanoeuvred even mr morgan he did at any rate receive in exchange for bonds and stock valued at two hundred seventeen million dollars an allotment of five per cent bonds in the steel trust of a par value of three hundred four million dollars constituting a mortgage not only upon the former carnegie works but upon all the other plants absorbed by the new corporation mr carnegie then retired from active business devoting himself to the building of libraries to fostering education by his munificence and to posing as an authority upon almost every subject of human interest from homeric criticism to spelling reform and becoming rather famous for his dictum to the effect that to die rich is to die disgraced note forty six page six thirty six mr john d rockefeller and mr philip d armour the respective organizers of the standard oil company and the so-called beef trust 
were men who laid the foundations of their colossal fortunes first of all by the minutest attention to small savings mr rockefeller studied carefully every possible method of avoiding waste in the handling of oil while mr armour contrived to convert every part of each slaughtered animal horns hoofs hide hair bones and bristles into a marketable product yet their fortunes would never have exceeded moderate limits had they not been able to secure secret advantages as against their rivals from the railways other exponents of the new wealth were mr h h rogers the audacious and powerful manager of mr rockefeller's company mr j w gates who came out of the west at this time and who was a sublimation of the reckless speculative type of financier and mr august belmont mr charles t yerkes and mr thomas f ryan who by ingenious management absorbed valuable franchises for street railways in new york and chicago which paid their owners immense annual sums while yielding next to nothing to the cities which had improvidently granted them such favors these and scores of other capitalists consolidated not only the related parts of particular industries and enterprises but they massed together unrelated interests thus mr rockefeller in control of the standard oil company absorbed also the amalgamated copper company and in time linked with these corporations two powerful chains of banks through the national city bank of new york the combination assumed practical control of more than fifty other banking institutions in various parts of the country and at least a dozen trust companies together with the mutual life insurance company it was estimated that they could influence within new york city alone not less than one hundred eight million dollars of banking capital four hundred seventy four million dollars of deposits and three hundred twenty three million of loans in like manner mr morgan was practically the master of another chain of banks and trust companies of the new york life insurance company and of the equitable life assurance society commanding an equal aggregation of capital together these two alliances have at their disposal nearly one-half of the banking capital of new york city not only are they ready at a moment's notice to loan millions and to undertake any vast enterprise for the favored trust but by their preponderance in the money market they are able to force the rivals of the trust to borrow at disadvantageous rates note forty seven page six thirty eight it is not surprising that the same wave of materialism which was in full flow elsewhere should submerge every department of the national government the era of consolidation which was declared to be a blessing was ascribed wholly to the dingley tariff law and to the dominance of the republican party mark hanna was now the spokesman of the administration and already one of the leaders in the senate that body naturally conservative looked somewhat askance at the prominence of one who had but just entered the senatorial order mr hanna however while not obtrusive broke through the unwritten laws which repressed the activities of new senators his hard-headed indomitable business sense and his great force of character made it impossible to ignore him though not an orator he could speak with force and point upon many questions he was never abashed and he had a fund of tough dry humour at his command at first one or two of the older senators attempted to teach this neophyte his proper place but none of them cared to make the attempt a second time mr hanna met all thrusts with imperturbable serenity and never failed in his repost whenever he spoke his colleagues and the galleries as well paid him the unusual compliment of an appreciative silence little by little too it came to be known that because of his practical good sense his services were really valuable upon committees and in the everyday work of congress of which the public knows and cares but little moreover he was a man of his word 
direct and upright in all personal relations and courteous to the many strangers with whom he came in contact it was only because he embodied and typified all the forces of materialism that he was still assailed by a part of the press and by the opposition the multiplication of trusts the absorption of franchises by the favoured few and the building up of special interests by special legislation these things mr hannah honestly believed to be in essence good and therefore he favoured subsidies for american shipping and every other form of bounty which would artificially make some classes of americans more prosperous than others his spirit was in truth the spirit of the day the nation for the moment dazzled by the evidences of material prosperity accepted the new gospel and the voice of opposition was little heeded in eighteen ninety nine the government of the united states had an opportunity to requite though in a very small degree the friendliness which great britain had displayed during the war with spain the transvaal republic and the orange free state had challenged the british empire to a contest in which the disparity of the contending forces seemed at first sight almost ludicrous the bravery of the boers however coupled with their skill in adapting their warlike operations to the physical conditions of the country led at first to severe reverses to the british arms those continental nations which had sympathized with spain and which but for great britain's attitude might have attempted intervention on her behalf now sneered and mocked at english valour in several chancelleries there were concocted sinister schemes which under some conditions might have been transmuted into action still more sinister in the united states there no doubt existed a certain sympathy with the boers springing from an admiration of their fighting qualities and from the natural good will which goes out to the weaker of two antagonists but the american government had not forgotten what lord pauncefote had done for the american cause in washington and what captain chichester had done in manila bay its neutrality in the boer war was modelled on the neutrality of great britain in eighteen ninety eight it was frankly benevolent toward the latter power british agents were allowed to purchase in the united states great numbers of horses and mules for the use of the queen's army in south africa and even to make enlistments in a quiet way later when a number of boer delegates came to washington with an appeal for either mediation or actual intervention president mckinley consented to receive them at the white house only as private individuals though he chatted with them pleasantly he said no word about the war and when they approached the subject he blandly called their attention to the beautiful view which could be seen from the windows of his drawing-room the enemies of england received neither aid nor comfort from the american government and presently the crisis passed another link however had been forged in the chain of interest and understanding which united the two english-speaking nations in the early months of the year nineteen hundred the impending presidential election began to arouse the interest of politicians yet even among politicians this interest was but a languid one that president mckinley would be renominated without opposition had long been a foregone conclusion that he would be elected was regarded as almost equally inevitable the country was so prosperous and the government had on the whole been so well administered as to give the democrats no popular issue not even the issue of discontent the four years which had elapsed since eighteen ninety six had done very little to unite the demoralized opposition no new leader had come to the front mr bryan in spite of the defeat which he had suffered in eighteen ninety six was still the dominant figure in his party and it was held that he might have the nomination if he chose to lead what was likely to be the forlornest of forlorn hopes when the republican convention assembled in philadelphia on june twentieth the only topic of animated discussion was the question whether governor roosevelt of new york would accept a nomination for the vice-presidency 
mr roosevelt's position was somewhat peculiar as governor he had alienated the sympathy of the great corporate interests by securing the passage of a much-needed law imposing a tax upon corporation franchises he had also estranged the so-called machine politicians of his state the chief of whom was senator thomas c platt governor roosevelt strongly desired to serve a second term as governor in order to carry out the reforms which he had instituted mr platt was anxious to get mr roosevelt out of the way the vice-presidency of the united states was popularly supposed to be an innocuous and purely ornamental office the occupant of which passed through it to a species of political oblivion senator platt therefore did all in his power to foster a sentiment in favor of mr roosevelt's nomination at philadelphia in this he found supporters who unlike mr platt himself were enthusiastic friends of the new york governor mr roosevelt had lived long on the western plains his ardent and unconventional manners endear him to the people of that section hence the delegates from the far western states came to philadelphia bent upon making him the candidate who was to divide the electoral honors with president mckinley it is now well understood that president mckinley by no means shared this feeling though he made no open signs of disapproval both he and senator hannah had a certain distrust of mr roosevelt whom they regarded as too impetuous a person to be wholly safe perhaps in president mckinley's heart of hearts there was a slight lack of cordiality based upon reasons that were purely personal when mr roosevelt was assistant secretary of the navy he had often fretted over what he held to be the extreme conservatism of the president and in accordance with his natural impulsiveness he had voiced his opinion to many persons in language that was by no means consistent with respect mckinley has no more backbone than a chocolate eclair was a favorite saying of his at that time and doubtless there were many tale-bearers to carry this and other like expressions to the presidential ear but the very fact that mr hannah was opposed to mr roosevelt brought to the governor friends with whom he would otherwise have had no natural affiliations senator key detested mr hannah and therefore in order to displease him he threw his influence in favor of mr roosevelt's candidacy governor roosevelt himself was quite sincere in his unwillingness to take the nomination on june eighteenth two days before the convention met he read a statement to a large number of newspaper correspondents in which after expressing his appreciation of the attitude of his many friends he said i feel most deeply that the field of my best usefulness to the public and the party is in new york state and if the party should see fit to renominate me for governor i can in that position help the national ticket as in no other way i very earnestly ask that every friend of mine in the convention respect my wish and my judgment in this matter note forty eight page six forty three end of chapter fourteen part two